Hi, everyone. Please consider leaving us a review where you listen to the podcast and also subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. We would also love for you to consider joining the She Speaks community. It's free to join, and you'll get the chance to have first access to surveys, giveaways, product reviews, sampling opportunities, and great content like this podcast. Visit SheSpeaks.com to join and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at She Speaks Up. Welcome back to the show. Hope you're all having a great week so far. This is the last week, the last full week of October, and I just feel like October has flown by so quickly, very much like the rest of 2022. But here we are, the very last full week of October, and we have a great guest on today's show. If you are somebody who has an autoimmune disease, you know someone who has an autoimmune disease, if you've wondered whether there is a connection between our brain and our immune system, then this is an episode you're going to want to listen to. We have on today the seven-time author, Donna Jackson Nakazawa. She's also an award-winning journalist. And Donna talks about her own experience as a young young person growing up and then growing into adulthood, having children and suffering from multiple autoimmune diseases. Uh, She was paralyzed twice. She has cardiac issues. And she talks about not only how it impacted her physically, but also how it was impacting her children and how she wanted to make uh, have their childhood be the most normal as she possibly could, even though she was going through these hard, these difficult experiences. So in this episode, what we talk about is Donna's direct experience with autoimmune diseases. She talks about that, her family history, but then we go into how she was able to take control of her health so that she could reduce the pain she was feeling and over time, really move ahead with her life. And we talk about so many interesting things during this conversation. I hope that this gives you some insight into what is going on in the study of autoimmune diseases, but very practically how somebody could take suffering from autoimmune diseases. And by autoimmune diseases, we're talking about Um, Things like multiple sclerosis, we're talking about psoriasis, celiac disease, Addison's disease, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, There are so many examples. And what scientists are starting to understand is the connection between environmental factors, which are playing a role in the increase in people who are being diagnosed with autoimmune disease, between 3 and 9% increase per year of people being diagnosed with autoimmune diseases. And now scientists believe, as I said, that the environmental factors, including diet, are playing a role. So I hope that you find this conversation interesting and useful for you and uh, gives you some information that you can use to follow up on and do some more of your own research if you're interested. So with that, I am going to let the amazing Donna Jackson Nakazawa speak for herself and talk us through her story and what she has learned along the way. With that, we're going to jump right into it. Here we go. Donna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, you are 
an award-winning journalist. You've written, this is now your seventh book. We're going to talk a bit about your seventh book today, but I want to take us back first. You've had a number of autoimmune diagnoses yourself, including uh, the, am I saying this right? Julian Barr syndrome? Oh, Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre, yes. Guillain-Barre, thank yeah. you. I obviously lacking on the French. Oh, it's <laughs> tough. <laughs> Um, I would love for if you could talk a little t- a little bit about your life and how your own diagnoses and what you've been through from a health perspective has shaped your approach to work and to wellness. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think for me, my work has always been really um, personal, even as what I put forth is extremely professional and writing books that maybe hopefully speak to anybody. But the personal always informs the professional. And growing up, um, my own father had a series of autoimmune diseases, and he died when I was really very, very young in a very tragic circumstances due to a medical error in surgery. And growing up with that kind of chronic illness in the family and loss and stress, um, it really changed everything for for me as a child, as any child who's lost a parent when they're very young knows. And it definitely affected my sense of safety. And so many, many years later, as I was raising young children, I... um, developed a series of autoimmune diseases, including Guillain-Barre, which um, is, a, is, a, is a paralyzing disease. Over a series of days or weeks, you become increasingly paralyzed. And so several times during my kids' youth, I would go into the hospital for weeks, sometimes four or six weeks at a time, which would include periods of physical rehabilitation and occupational therapy. So this, uh, I, I was paralyzed twice. I had complications later, which was another whole thing. Um, I have a pacemaker. I have cardiac issues. And all of that really framed my kids' childhoods in a way that felt so devastating to me as a mother, having wanted to provide a sense of safety for them. And it also made me realize that we're living in this world of invisible illness in which we know that autoimmune disease and even we know that mental health concerns of anxiety and depression, for reasons I go into in my latest book, affect women at two to three and sometimes four times the rate of men. And we also know, and I will talk about this later, that a lot of this hasn't been studied, the intersections of stress and environment across female health and development, everything we thought we knew has been based on a male model. And it's really, really recently that we've started to see neuroscientists and immunologists dig into these questions in female models. And so I guess as somebody with a history of severe chronic illness and having lost a parent very young and with a pretty keen understanding as a reporter of how stress in the environment and lost adversity can shape us across the lifespan. And also as a feminist, somebody who's seen how women are so often left out of the story. 
And yet to see women really shaping our world, shaping children's lives, shaping all of all of the caregiving and nurturing that goes on in this universe, and yet the ways in which we're held back. I think all of that has really shaped my writing in a profound way and everything that I've taken on and tackled. I don't write about anything unless it hasn't been said and and unless it really needs to be said. So I guess lying in bed those years ago with my small children who I would try to make it fun for them, like, okay, my bed is like a ship. It's a library. It's a, it's a board game table. You know, we spent months in that bed. And yet I think so much of who I am now is shaped in the things that I felt during that time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to delve into that for a, in a minute, but I would love if you could talk a little bit about how you went about the process of investigating, yeah. right? What was going on with you? Because as you said, this is not maybe the traditional things that people, that doctors are used to dealing with. So, and a lot of women, I I can't tell you how many women tell us that they are dealing with things from hormonal issues, a slate of things that they go to their doctors and there is con the conventional medical approach we have in the West right. has not really given them any resolution. Right. So how did you go about figuring out what was going on with you and coming to a point where you could function and thrive? Well, it was a long road. Um, and I will say um, my father was a newspaper man and a newspaper editor. And, and my um, grandfather was a founder of the National Institutes of Health and a researcher and on my mother's side. So um, I, I will say that, you know, it wasn't just like oh, I think I should do this. It was some part of it was also in my environment. So I want to be very clear that, you know, it's part of our nature, our DNA as a family, literally and figuratively to kind of take on these tough, gnarly questions, right? And so um, it might have been different if I'd grown up with parents who were doctors, but I grew up at the dinner table, you know, taking on these really hard things as a family. And so for me, the process of investigating is a kind of a natural thing, both from a scientific level and also from a journalistic level. It feels like breathing air. So for me, that meant... I've been a journalist a long time, right? I, I went to a publishing program after after my undergrad, and I cut my teeth in the world of New York publishing. So, lying in bed during that time and want, you know, seeing out my window how other moms were picking their kids up and putting them in the car and driving them to school, things that I used to be able to do, and I wanted to get back to doing. I wanted that safe childhood for my kids more than anything. And I started making calls and picking up the old fashioned phone and calling neuroscientists and people at NIH. And then when I was better and I was well enough, 
you know, I remember a few times my husband would drive me over to the rabbit warren of NIH and I'd go meet with somebody like Noel Rose, who's largely considered the scientific father of our understanding of autoimmunity, or Fred Miller, who was the first person to look at the intersection of stress and autoimmunity. And I'd sit there and and ask them questions and take notes as, as a science writer and then go home and call somebody else and say, well, he said, and he said, and if you put those together, doesn't it mean X? And realizing as a reporter, the deeper I got into these gnarly issues, how siloed all of our understanding is, and that in these silos, they had largely left women out. And I would begin to hear more and more, yeah, most of the patients in our waiting room are women between, you know, 20 and 55. And and I'd hear it over and over again and think, well, what do they all have in common? You know, they've, they're women in this world, in this very society of overwhelm where there is a lot of toxic stress and misogyny and cultural sexism. But they've also gone through the childbearing years. They've gone through puberty. Something's going on here, folks, between this intersection of being a female in a toxic environment. And what do we do about that? And that began really my exploration. So I've always been really lucky to have grown up in a world where asking hard questions was second nature to us. And and I don't know, I don't think I'm brave, but somehow I've always had the sense that if your question was good enough, you could get to anybody. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, and there is a value in right. in asking the question because if you when you just described how your journalist background helped you right. piece together things, it made so much sense to me because a journalist, a good journalist right. is asking good questions, but then also seeing the connection between the things that they're hearing over here and then someplace else that may seem like it, it's a completely different you know, arena, but you figure out how to put those and, things and together. And you run around, not to interrupt, you run around making sure that when you think A plus B plus C plus D wouldn't that equal E? You run around and you ask everybody, couldn't it? And, and then you take, get another layer of understanding. And so, you know, it's a really cool thing that we get yeah. to do as, as writers, as science writers, as nonfiction writers, is, is create those connections between the dots that answers an old question in an entirely new way. That's really what I try to do. Yes. Well, so so you went on this year-long mind and body experiment, and I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that and what it did for your health. Right. So um, as I began to recover from these long hospitalizations and periods of um, paralysis, I still was, even two years later, and I was very, very fortunate because some people never get out of a wheelchair, and I had the greatest neurologist in the world um, at Johns Hopkins who just helped me every minute and still does. We're still very close and work closely together. So I had really good acute medical care in terms of getting um, 
the right IVs, the right hospitals, the right hospitalizations, the right physicians. So again, I want to acknowledge that that privilege there of, of that kind of access, which not everyone has, because I hear from lots and lots of people with severe illness who just are looking for that moment, right? So to be clear, having had that and all the IVs of IVIGs, which are other people's healthy antibodies to kind of like help reboot my immune system and get me out of death's door. I was so grateful, but I still wasn't living a life in the way that we think about living life. It was really about, okay, you know, write a few paragraphs, lie down, take the laundry basket halfway up the stairs sit down, get the rest of the way up the stairs, lie down. It was nothing in my home for my kids to walk over me while I was lying on the floor. Nothing at all. They would, they would not, they, it didn't worry them or scare them any more than they were already worried and scared, which I've come to learn more about as they've gotten older, how scared they really were. But they'd be like, okay, mom, you know, need anything, mom? Or, and I just started to feel like life was looking very difficult on some essential level that precluded the joy of being here. And I, and I just found that unacceptable. So I started to ask myself, well, if this is the case, if this is, the body that I have at this time, I need to get off the pain channel and pain after paralysis is a real thing. It's really extreme neuromuscular damage is painful to this day, but it seemed like my brain was always like a funnel going to this pain body, this really pained and fatigued body. And I started to ask a question what would it be like if it funneled into something else? What if I, could I do this work? And I, and I want to, I want to say that I began that one year study in 2011. So before it was so easy to go to a mindfulness retreat or, you know, we weren't really talking 11 or 12 years ago very much about the mind body connection. So I went to one of my doctors and I said, what could I do if I were to say over the next year of my life, devote myself to getting into this other funnel? And we sat down and she said, I will run a whole bunch of baseline labs on you, all the best that we can do here at Hopkins, all your cortisol levels, all your immune function, your bone marrow. I also have a disease in my bone marrow. And we'll look at all those factors. And then let's come up with these things that we think we can do to shift your day-to-day mental state of awareness of the world that you're in and get you back on that joy channel. And this is a Hopkins internal medicine specialist. I, I just want to pause for a second and say, I find that stunning. Right. That you would find a physician. Yeah. Back in 2011, I mean, not, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find one today to do this, but back in 2011, who would agree 
to help you with this, to have a recognition. Female physician with Mm. a set of chronic illnesses Mm. who at that time was um, in trying to build a center for integrative medicine at Hopkins and who was very interested in the intersection between trauma growing up and that how that sets our set point of well-being from cradle to grave. So she had some interests and I had some interests and we thought we could do some good together. So can I ask, is there one or are there one or two things that you can share from that? Because we hear a lot from experts who have a better understanding. I mean, the brain is still something that as much as we know about the body, we know very little about the brain, but we know, right, that there's this connection between the mind and the body. We know that we can retrain how we think about things, that we can wire our brains to think positively and to have that mindset and that that can affect certainly our mood um, and, and then also hopefully our, our health. Can you share anything that you, it's, that you can tangibly give to people to help them kind of wrap their heads around this idea of how you were doing, you talked about this silo, right? Like how can you get yourself to think more a certain way and to take the pain and 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 funnel it. You talked about it as a funnel. Yeah, right. Can you share anything tangible with us that people can can use to kind of wrap their heads around what this meant for you? Well, I think I, I'm I promise I will do that. But first, because I love science, I want to say that my 2020 book, The Angel and the Assassin, really looked at the cellular basis of the mind body connection, and I bring that up because I think that I've come to see over these many years as a journo that when we offer up scientific proof of something, it in and of itself is a tangible offering. So for instance, in The Angel and the Assassin, I spent a lot of time working with a team at Harvard led by Beth Stevens, who was the first person to show that the brain and the immune system, which is really our stress response, are working as one system. They're chatting all day long. And we think of our immune system. We talked a lot about the immune system a minute ago in terms of autoimmune disease. Our immune system is really responding all the time to stress and threats in our environment. So the more stress we are here, the more inflammation and reactivity we have here in our bodies over time, high levels of stress, throw out more cortisol and other factors, which lead to inflammation and disease, right? We've known that for a really long time. But what Stevens and her team at Harvard were able to do was demonstrate for the first time that our brain has an immune system full of these little immune cells that respond to stress in our environment the same way that our immune system in our body does. And across scientific history, it was long assumed that our brain and our body didn't really talk to each other. can thank Descartes for that, like mind-body dualism. But in fact, our brain's immune system is made up of these little immune cells called glia 
that are cousins to the white blood cells in our body. And they chat all day long going, am I safe or not safe? Do I feel safe or not? Am I stressed or not? Is stuff coming at me or is it not coming at me? Oh no, all this is coming at me. And in that state of overwhelm, our brain tells our body to rev up. So that's the first thing I want to say, because I think it puts into context what you're asking me, which is, okay, if we know that stress and trauma in our environment, and including the stress and trauma we grew up in, can kind of turn that dial up and set it at a set point that like a hose that turns on these inflammatory cocktails of factors in our body and brain, which over time will affect our body's well-being and also the wiring and firing in our brain, well, then we have to ask ourselves, how do we dial down our body and brain stress machinery? That's the question. So if you're asking me how I did it, and how I still have to redo it in every minute of my life, because this is never a one and done. It's not a year's journey. It's a life journey. The ways that I do that in, in my one-year experiment in, the la- in my book, The Last Best Cure, we centered it around, I already ate very well as somebody with severe autoimmune issues. My diet was already pretty clean. So let's just say you gotta, you gotta, you have to get control of that. Um, and there are better experts on that than, than I. But we focused on rigorous meditation, rigorous mind-body movement, as in yoga. And um, for me, there are a lot of different things I add in there, like Feldenkrais and Anat Banyal neuro movement and, and acupuncture, time out in nature, and what tied all of those together was a rigorous exercise of self, being a detective of self, to see in every moment of my own day how I could switch out my attention to the things that brought me into that state of seeing and noticing and joy. And it still is a thing for me, no matter what's happening, to look for that grounding, look for that reframe. And I don't mean toxic positivity because we have to really notice what's hard and really let it be hard before we look for these strategies. For instance, for me, the first year I did yoga, like 2011, After every single time, I would just sob on the mat for about half an hour. So it isn't about, I don't, I don't want to come across here as, oh, she wrote a book about thinking positive thoughts, you know, no, ma'am, I did not. I very much came to find that it was knowing our story, knowing what's hard, knowing what knocks us over understanding that grief and the effect of that on us, and also coming to a place where we could stalk joy and how that over time begins to send a different set of messages to our brain and our nervous system. And the details of that, you know, filled 320 pages. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a lot more to that. I, I appreciate that deeper dive there because I do think 
it helps provide people who are listening with some context about how what is involved in this. In turn, in in thinking about another book you wrote, <laughs> I don't know when I wrote all these books. My kids say I was always writing at the kitchen table in between, you know, all the chaos of raising a family. And I guess that's true. I will also say a very good place to get writing done is waiting in doctor's offices. I think I've written a heck of a lot. While waiting for while appointments. Waiting. Well, I bet you, you wait a lot. So, so Child Disrupted, you talk about how your biography becomes your biology. Can you just talk a little bit about what that means? I think you touched upon it earlier in the, in our conversation, but I'd love if you could talk about what that means. So we have over 2,000 good research studies, um, which focus on something called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And what that means, or you might hear it referred to as ACEs. So um, I guess it would have been about 2013, because you always start a new book when the other one is sitting there at Random House or Simon and Schuster waiting for its day to come into the world. You've already locked it and it's just sitting there. So you start writing something else during that time. And I guess around 2013, I started investigating um, this body of research on adverse childhood experiences, which really are a body of experiences, a, a types of experiences, categories of experience that have one thing in common. They create a chronic sense of unsafety. They happen unpredictably. It may be growing up with a parent with a mental illness. It may be an untreated mental illness, let me be quick to say. It may be growing up with a parent with a substance use disorder, parents who divorce, parents who just hate each other and never divorce. But that what they all have in common or in a neighborhood that's not safe or with food insecurity and, you know, our world today has become even more um, complex in terms of adversity than when the original researchers began this body of work in 1995. So it came out in 1998. It was largely ignored by researchers because even, you know, a psychiatrist thought it was just a bunch of hooey. Even when my book, Childhood Disrupted, came out, a psychiatrist in New York came out at me in the New York Times saying this is just so much bullshit. But it was this revolutionary idea that the events in childhood set this stress response on high alert, which makes sense now that we have the understanding for the mind-body connection, and set that immune system kind of on overdrive in ways that can lead to depression and anxiety and different physical diseases from heart disease to cancer to autoimmune disease. Um, many of these associations are strongest in women because women experience more categories of adversity often for reasons I think you'll, you can figure out on your own. And, and that this relationship between adversity in childhood, the degree and the number of categories that one faces and one's likelihood of facing disease and mental health issues in adulthood is so staggering that it literally shocked the researchers who began these studies. And then we began to see, as I said, 2,000 other studies come out corroborating this relationship. It really didn't matter what disease you were looking at, mental, physical health issues. It turned out that all of the different disorders that you and I could possibly name over the next hour 
There is a dose-dependent relationship between the degree of adversity you face before the age of 18 and those health outcomes across the lifespan. So I wrote a book about it, and it's something that requires, and actually I teach at many, many universities, a course on looking at your own trauma and adopting different strategies to address it that are extremely tangible and toolkit oriented called your healing narrative. And I've taught it at many universities, many medical schools, because it turns out, guess what? Doctors and therapists have really high degrees of trauma (laughs) growing up. And so this book really looked at um, that relationship between our biography and our biology And what we know about that stress machinery on an epigenetic level, how it begins to change our genes, and how we can kind of turn some of those genes back off again. Wow. I'm uh, I'm writing notes because I'm gonna. I would love to see if we can find something about the this course that you're talking about. It's actually now an online course because during the pandemic. I wasn't Mm. able to go out in person and teach it at conferences. And I also couldn't just spend all day on Zoom doing it. So we made it into an online, an online program. So I think it's easy to find on my website, TanaJacksonNakazawa.com. All right. Well, that's great. We will also make sure to to link it. So so that kind of brings me to my next question, which is the most recent book you've written. Oh, yeah. That one. (laughs) Girls on the Brink helping our daughters thrive in an era of increased anxiety, depression, and social media. This is a topic I'm very passionate about, given the fact that this is what a lot of what we spend our time doing all day long, talking to women, social media being a big part of it. I also have two daughters, two teenagers, and this is something that I recognize is at this point, almost at, seems to be everyone is dealing with some form of anxiety and depression, and social media seems to be linked to it. Can you talk a little bit about what this book is and what we need to understand about this as parents? So again, I love to set a framework. So it after you've heard about all these books that I've written, um, imagine my surprise as I, well, first of all, it's no secret that rates of anxiety and depression in girls have been skyrocketing for a while. Before the pandemic, we knew that one in three girls by the age of 17 had reported a period of not just depression, but a period of six weeks marked by hopelessness, despair, guilt, unworthiness, loss of interest in activities. Um, And we also were seeing that the gap between female adolescent health and male adolescent health at and after puberty, that gap widens and that gap was getting bigger and has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Right now, um, girls have a 48 or 48% more likely to have depression than boys, 46% more likely to have anxiety. And the anxiety rate in girls is 2.6 times higher than it is in boys. The pandemic poured gasoline on this fire. And in 2021, the CDC reported that the rate of suicide attempts among girls had risen 51% 
compared to 4% among boys. Now, I am the mother of a son and a daughter. I care equally about boys and girls. And um, I've written an awful lot about how to help boys. But imagine my surprise as I began to narrow in on these rising numbers and ask from that gnarly question viewpoint, what's going on? Why now? And began talking to neuroscientists and immunologists and public health sages. Imagine my surprise when I discovered that all the research that I have been reporting on about the intersection of stress and neuroscience on health and development was all based on male research models. It was only in 2016 that the NIH kindly requested, it's still not required, that researchers try to include female models in preclinical and translational research. So preclinical research is often that stage which, and I'm sorry to all the animals out there, which involves animal studies. We don't like it. But in fact, it is where all research in humans begins. Everything that we know about human health and well-being from a neurobiological perspective begins in preclinical research. Then it moves to translational research. And then we begin to like do clinical studies. So while we'd had research on the numbers for a long time, what we call epidemiology, like, okay, X percent of girls have this versus X percent of boys, that's epidemiology. The science of why, that neurobiology had all been done on a male research model. Why? Because researchers wanted and needed, they thought, to keep those pesky hormones out of it. Turns out when you look at a female research model, you see entirely different things happening in the brain when faced with unrelenting, unmitigated stress. Entirely different changes happen in different areas at different times. And I want to be clear that in normal, healthy environments, the female adolescent brain is just as groovy. It's the best brain on the planet, people. It is so groovy. Puberty comes in. Estrogen is this groovy master regulating hormone. It confers a lot of evolutionary advantages to women. But in the face of ongoing chronic, unpredictable, toxic stressors in the environment, that evolutionary advantage where estrogen gives us a bigger immune boost, more protection, it's that reason, people, why a woman can do the same number of hours, more hard work, more multitasking in a smaller body with smaller organs and still make room for a uterus. That's estrogen. It's that added one. It's why we have a bigger response to vaccines. We build more immune molecule, molecule responses. It's also why women get more autoimmune disease because it flips to an evolutionary disadvantage in the face of unrelenting toxic stress. It's why women have more long COVID than men. So that advantage that women have had across time that makes that adolescent female brain so, I mean, the corpus callosum between the left and the right hemispheres allows for all this awareness in this spidey sense. It's just such a time of promise. But in a toxic environment, it flips to an evolutionary disadvantage and it can rev up those stress immune responses we talked about. And as the brain goes through puberty and is asking, am I safe or not safe? The brain is going to wire up on the answer to that. And when girls come into puberty, 
today? And the answer to that question is, I'm not safe. The brain begins to fire and wire up, prepared for the next bad thing. And there are ways in which puberty has changed and social media has come in and the whole world is heating up that have made the answer to that question more likely to be, I'm not safe. Mm. I'm blown away by the variety of topics we've covered in this <laughs> pretty short conversation, but Donna, they're all connected. Right. It's clear to me that these are all connected. Right. And I understand your fascination and passion for each of them because there is this, there's a theme and a thread that goes through through all of this. Thank you. I mean, I cannot tell you how helpful I think this conversation is. There are, there's so much more that I think we could go very deep on one of them for its own hour long show. If people want to follow what you're doing and continue to learn about what's next for you, maybe read more about the topics we've been through, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, um, I'm a positive force on social media, um, trying to be that. Um, I'm by no means an influencer. I've spent too much time writing to be an influencer, but you can certainly find me on Instagram at Donna Jackson Nakazawa. You can find me on Twitter at Donna Jack Nock. You can find me um, a little bit on Facebook, not very much, but mostly you can get all the information you need from my website at DonnaJacksonNakazawa.com. You'll see all my books. You'll see past press. You'll see book reviews. You'll see um, there are lots of things, lots of resources there. My online healing narrative courses, which are really about um, understanding your own narrative so that you can respond in much healthier ways without being knocked off balance by the world we're living in. All of that's there. And um, I just really appreciate this opportunity to kind of, it was nice in the middle of book tour for Girls on the Brink to take this retrospective view. So thank you for that. It was fun. Thank you for listening to our show. And if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is just to leave us a five-star rating wherever you listen to the show. You don't have to write a review. You can just leave us one of those five-star ratings. And that is really the best way to support the show so we can bring you more great content. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you're an influencer or a brand that wants to work with us, please feel free to email us at info at Until next time.